Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you, Lord, for this day. We thank you, Lord, uh, for your word. Father, we pray that as we uh, begin our study of this passage of Scripture, Lord, we ask that you would um, just clear our minds uh, of any worries, fears, um, distractions that are uh, keeping us from hearing your word. Father, we pray that your spirit would illuminate the meaning of this text, that we would um, rightly understand um, what Christ is speaking. And Father, that we would uh, see how this passage applies to us. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us, that you would convict us, that you would guide us, that you would um, help us to see um, what this passage of Scripture is teaching. We thank you that the Word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. We thank you um, that you are able to meet each one of us through your Word, even though we come from a variety of backgrounds and we have a variety of things um, weighing on us in our lives right now. And so, Father, we look to you. We look to Christ. Father, we ask that you would draw us close. We love you, Lord. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And Father, we do thank you for this word. We pray um, that you would be honored, that you'd be glorified as we worship you now. Uh, through the studying of your holy scriptures. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so as a way of reminder, I have to flip my page back to the beginning of chapter 5. Um, but in verse 1, we sort of see the, the, the context of, of what's happening here. Uh, we read in verse 1, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. After he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and he began to teach them, saying... Uh, Jesus's ministry is now begun. Uh, he'd been doing, the, Matthew doesn't necessarily, it, it records the, the broad stroke, but Jesus had been doing miracles. He'd been doing things to demonstrate his deity. Uh, the, the crowd, his reputation had grown and developed. Um, he sees uh, that there are this huge crowd following after him. So they make their way up on the mountain. On the, the picture behind me, uh, this is a view from uh, what's called today the Mount of Beatitudes. Um, we don't know if that's the exact spot, but it was up on that hill somewhere uh, where Jesus gave this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount that flows from chapter 5 all the way through uh, chapter 7. What you're seeing, if you're daydreaming and you're looking at the picture behind me, this is exactly what the disciples in the crowds would have seen. Jesus' back would have been uh, to the Sea of Galilee. He would have used the, um, the, the natural environment in the setting in order to project his voice. And so it's from this location. Uh, we're looking to the south, um, the Sea of Galilee to the left. And if you were to keep going to the horizon, you'll eventually hit Jerusalem and the Dead Sea. And so... 
Uh, he gets them there. There's this big crowd. He begins his sermon with what is known as uh, the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes um, sort of, they're not, it's not an instruction. It's not a command. It's, uh, they are very proverbial in nature. They're truisms. They're statements concerning the character of uh, the individual who follows the king. Um, those who walk with Christ will demonstrate these characteristics. Uh, the first few deal with sort of um, the inward heart, deep within. We see blessed or happy are those who are poor in spirit. This idea of being poor in spirit, the word poor is is a word that would describe a, a beggar, someone who is just utterly destitute, so much so that when they're reaching or begging for money, they sort of cringe. They can't look at the individual. There's almost a flinching sense. They bring nothing to the table. But Jesus isn't speaking poor in the sense of monetary. He's speaking poor in the sense of spirit. That the individual of the kingdom, those who follow Christ, understand that they bring nothing spiritually to the table we are mere beggars he goes on to say from there they mourn and it's the idea of mourning sinfulness that there's this deep grieving within them that they have a, a clarity of their sinful nature and how repulsive and vile that is um, they're gentle or meekness And then finally, the fruit of repentance is this hunger, this deep desire and thirst for righteousness. Uh, That although they have no righteousness that they bring to the table, they are now a part of the kingdom and their, their heart is for righteousness. And from there, he transitions to uh, these inward characters then sort of flow outward in in relationships to others, that the uh, the person of the kingdom will be merciful. Um, They have received so much mercy from God. So how they treat their fellow humans is, is this outflowing of the mercy that they've received from God now flows to others. Then we get to the, the, the purity of heart, um, then the one that sort of the, the, the culmination, which I see is this, this peacemakers that there's this, that the people of the kingdom of God, those who follow Christ will actively pursue making peace uh, amongst individuals. Uh, they, they, they value unity. Um, they don't gossip and stir the pot and complain. And through this, these characteristics, by the time we get to verses 10 and 11, these characteristics cut against the culture of the world. And as there's this cutting against the world, those will either receive um, those of the kingdom and respond to the king, or there are those who will resist. And often uh, the resistance will result in persecution where verses 10 through 11 deal with blessed are those who have been persecuted. Um, Jesus goes on to say that as you're persecuted for righteousness sake, not for being a jerk, not for being annoying, but, but, but there's the, the, he, he, he highlights persecuted for righteousness sake. He says, you're like the prophets who are before you. 
And see, I read this passage as I, as I think about this whole Sermon on the Mount. It's, you know, I often refer to the Bible as sort of like beef jerky. It's like the best thing I can relate it to. You can scarf beef jerky, which I do occasionally. Oh, a lot of times. But there's also with beef jerky, there's like the benefit of like really chewing it and like just taking it in and, and enjoying the flavors. And it just takes a while if you do it the right way. And the better Bible passages, or I wouldn't say the better Bible passages, we do better when we approach the scripture where we allow it to sort of bounce around in our head, in our hearts, where we ponder it, where we meditate upon it, where we consider what's it saying. And this whole week, this has been one of those weeks where, especially as we come into verse 13, this whole idea of salt and I've been chewing on it, thinking about it, praying about it. God's been sort of working in my own heart. But but as I've been thinking about it, when I see this last three verses, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil about you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I read that. I, I, I think of the images of the Coptic Christians who were executed for their faith in Christ. And I'm the first to admit that when I think of persecution, this isn't something in my heart that I say, woo blessed, like sign me out. That's what I want. I, I read this. And I, I see that following Christ sets me apart from the world that I sit in, that I live in. And if I follow Christ and the world which I live, the way I live sets me apart. And, and one of the things that will result is persecution. There are two sort of things that could happen. On the one side of the coin, I want to withdraw create my Christian bubble, my little Christian commune where it's safe. Or the other side of the coin is I want to be a social chameleon. I I want to look like the world. I don't want to put myself in a position where I could put my life in danger. And Christ says, rejoice and be glad. I don't know. It's something to to chew on. And I love in this section, Jesus from persecution, he immediately challenges those that are hearing him not to withdraw, not to look different, but to remain, to be in the midst of the culture in which you set. Um, John MacArthur summarizes this transition with one word, that the Beatitudes lead to one thing, and that's influence. That those who follow Christ will have an influence with those around them. And in today's passage, Jesus uses these two illustrations of salt and light, which every home of the people that Jesus was speaking to, every home would have salt and light. Every home today has salt and light. Um, 
But it was different then, and we'll look at the differences in a, in a, in a, in a second. But I'd love just to, to pause that Jesus was a great teacher. I believe Jesus taught with joy. And, and when you read through the gospel accounts, they often say that, that Jesus taught different than the scribes. It's almost like he wasn't boring. He taught very practically. It made sense. And so in today's story, he's using these teaching points of salt and light to make a profound impact in the lives of those who follow him, who are uh, students of his, those who have given their life to him. And so when I, just getting into verse 13, as I start making observations about the text, I, I, I see to the crowd, we've, we've examined, this is a large, I mean, hundreds, thousands. I don't know how many of the crowds were, but he saw a ton of people. He goes up to the mountain, they all follow. His disciples are also there. The word disciple is used a, a number of different ways, e- either for the, the many, sometimes it's used for the twelve. But this picture of mine is that there are, there are many people who have heard his message, who have seen the healing, who have been attracted enough to him to follow. We noted that the scribes and the Pharisees stood at a distance, condemning. They were not a part of this group. And so then I look at these two phrases, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And the thing that comes to mind is Jesus has terribly low standards. I mean, seriously, he barely even knows these people. Like some of them just kind of like, hey, where's this crowd going? I'm going to follow the crowd. Some maybe a fight's going to break out or something. I don't know. Like, have you guys noticed when there's a crowd, people just sort of follow the crowd. And so these people are following. They want to see Jesus. And then he addresses all of them and says, you all are the light. You all are the salt. I come from a from a my professional background before I was a pastor was a seal. We were ex- I mean ex- extremely exclusive. Like you have to go through all of the whatever and then once you graduate you still have to go through another 6 months and then if then you're finally awarded the trident then it's like okay you're a seal. Super, super exclusive. And even so, there are retired guys that spend their whole retirement tracking down phonies to expose them. And so my, my bent, my background is more like, let's see if you got what it takes. Let's sort of like see what you're made of. And then let's kind of put you through the ringer for a few extra months. And then maybe then we'll see what you got. And then maybe you can take the name Christian. Well, you guys should all be happy that I'm not God. <laughs> and the reality is none of us would meet, none of us will meet the standard. Like we're going to, next week at the end, he's, he, he shows us the standard is above that of the Pharisees and scribes. Basically, the bar is set so high that, that none of us can meet the standard. And, and so to see that Jesus looks at all of these imperfect people, they weren't even the religious ones. These are like tax collectors, fishermen. And he tells them, you're the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. This is early in Jesus' ministry, and it's encouraging that Jesus includes us. The fact that I am sitting here teaching the Bible to you is hilarious to me. You'd be horrified if you knew who I really was. Like, I mean, 
And so he says, he starts with, you are the salt of the earth. What does this mean? What is salt? What is he implying? If, if you're like me and I start thinking about salt, I think this is a delicious condiment that is in little bottles that whenever the food comes around, I like start shaking it. And then when my wife kind of turns around, I like really douse it. <laughs> She's like, stop putting so much salt on there. But salt is delicious. Like I want more of it on my food. My little daughter, Grace, we always high-five each other. You know, when we get French fries, it's like we always wait till like mom turns around and we're like, <laughs> it's delicious. And this is often how this, this passage is taught. We view it from our context and, and, and our world. And so then we go to jump to the interpretation. Well, Jesus says, you're the salt of the world. That means that Christians, we're like, we're like the spice of life to the world around us. We, uh, you know, there's like boring and bland worlds. You throw a couple Christians in there and now it's flavorful. Just tastes better with us around. I don't, I don't, in, in my study this week, that's this, that is, that is probably the least um, usage. Now it was used as a flavoring back then. But, but that wasn't, if you, in this crowd, if you heard salt, th- that is not how you would have perceived salt. Um, salt was a valuable commodity, very expensive. Um, today's salt's really cheap. It's always one of those things that I'm surprised if I have to go to the grocery store to pick up the salt. And I go to the salt aisle and I see the little lady with the umbrella on there. And it's like, oh, that big old thing, 33 cents? Well, that's a great deal. Let's get seven of these because we need more salt. But salt was extremely valuable. It was, it was often used as a form of a payment. All of the Roman soldiers, they would, they would be paid by money, but then a portion of their uh, salary was in salt. It's where the expression comes from, that, that, that you're not or they are not worth, um, they're not worth their salt. Uh, that's where that expression comes from, is that it was a form of payment. If you're not worth your salt, you're not worth what we paid uh, for the services. If you follow the etymology of the word salary, you'll learn that the word salary actually is rooted in salt. The most common use for salt was for preservation. Um, They didn't have refrigeration. And if you wanted to preserve meat, if you wanted to keep decay away, the fishermen would fish for the fish, they would prepare the meat, and then they would soak the the meat in salt so that they could transport it all the way to Jerusalem some 60 miles away this is there's no ice there's no refrigerated trucks to to carry there this is how how you would how you would keep the meat fresh and, and from a guy who loves salt you don't salt salted meat uh, back when i was a kid it was my junior i was i think i was my junior year of high school i was sent away to bad kids camp i went to utah that's where I learned about what that Mormon, I didn't even know that Mormons existed at that point in my life. And I show up at this place for the bad kids camp and they start asking about me and I'm like, oh yeah, I, there's seven kids in my family. And they all ask, they're like, oh, are you the oldest? I'm like, no, I'm the second to youngest. And the guy's like, ah, I didn't say, are you the oldest? I said, are you LDS? I'm like, I don't even know what LDS is. He's like, Latter-day Saints is Mormons. Like, you have seven kids in your family. You've got to be Mormon. I'm like, oh, no, no, I'm Catholic. I'm from the other variety of life, where I was at the time. That has nothing to do with the story. Um, but at this bad kids camp, 
we had to go two months of like surviving in the wilderness and it and it went through phases uh, of starving us to getting us a, a little bit more. There were three phases. At the end of each phase, we had to spend 24 hours in isolation by ourselves with a very limited uh, amount of food. And when they gave us notice, we had to sort of scramble uh, for whatever food was available to go. The last phase, the third phase, we, we did three days in isolation by ourselves. And in the scrambling for food, I grabbed a bag of carrots and then there was this meat option. It turns out it was salt pork. I don't even, like, I'm sure they still make salt pork. I don't know how you use salt pork. But I grabbed this salt pork. It was like this brick of looked like bacon, sort of, but not sliced up. And so I took that slab of salt pork, just room temperature, but because it's salted, there was no, there was no need to refrigerate it. The first day it was raining. I was desperately all day starving, trying to make fire. During this time, a guy came to check in on me. Hey, you have everything you need? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got a half. I have a half canteen. I'm good. I have this bag of carrots, which are almost gone. And I have this meat. And as soon as I get fire, it's going to be heaven. And, and so the second day I got the fire and I just barbecued up all of this salt pork. It was so, so, so good. You didn't even need to add salt because it was so salty. And then I ran into a situation where I, I needed water and it was very, very bad. <laughs> and my point to all of this is like, it's a stretched point. <laughs> is that's my experience with salted meat. And, and, and so if salt is, is preserving meat is, is terribly important. If you don't have a refrigerator, you want to keep your food so that you can survive. If you're harvesting meat, you want to keep it where decay won't set in. That's how you would use salt. This is the most, salt is super valuable. It wouldn't be used as a, as a seasoning. And, and so with this in mind, when we're studying the scripture, we have to go back to the to, to the, to the foundation. How was this word used? We have to be careful not to read in our, our understanding of things because our understanding is far off. If we read it with our understanding, we read it sort of like Christians are like the seasoning of the world. But now when we read it and we come to the understanding that salt was actually a major preservative, it's what kept decay from destroying the meat. Now then I read this and it says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now we're going to get to the whole, uh, the bad salt in a second. But now if I read this and I understand that salt in the context to that Jesus' hears was used as a sense of preserving how is it that his followers have any, or we as followers of Christ, how, like what's this, how do we preserve the world or the earth? It, it seems that what Jesus is saying is those of you who follow me, those of you who live out um, your life and following me that we're not chasing the beatitudes, but as we walk with Christ, as the spirit indwells us, the fruit of the spirit comes out. And many of the beatitudes I believe are uh, the, the fruit of the spirit. And as the fruit of the spirit manifests itself in our lives, how 
does that create sort of a preserving or a preservation effect within our world around us? Someone say it's, we become sort of a moral anti, antiseptic. We provide sort of moral clarity. There seems to be this element of those who follow Christ within a given culture seem to hold back decay or even God's wrath at the time. As I'm thinking about this, like, are there any examples in the scripture that would, would validate this thought of what Jesus said? Now, I'm not going to look at the story, but the story of Sodom and Gomorrah found in Genesis chapter 18. This is the story where there's great evil in a town. God says, I'm going to come and I'm going to, I'm going to destroy these towns for the evil. And there's this sort of pleading back and forth. We'll, we'll spare the town. And God says, fine. If there are 50 who follow after me, I will spare the town from the wrath. It's like, oh, 50. <laughs> Maybe, Lord, can we, can we adjust that number? And God goes, oh, 45, 40, 30, all the way down to 10. If there are just 10 people, I will spare the town from the wrath. Well, there was none. So there was 1 Corinthians seven fourteen. There's a verse that has always sort of intrigued me. What does it mean? And it says, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through their believing husband for otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. This whole passage in, in Corinthians 17, the, the, the believers are kind of, hey, well, I became a Christian. I started to follow Christ while married and my spouse isn't a believer. What should I do? Should I, should I leave them? And the scripture says, no, you stay as long as they're willing to continue to be married with you and they're continued, they're okay with being in this bond, you stay with them. And there seems to be some sort of like preservation or sanctifying element that has made me wonder. Uh, um, I read somewhere that an unbelieving spouse may not want to hear the gospel every day, but they cannot not be affected by your life. And so the idea of preservation, if you have... Um, two people that get married that don't know the Lord, they're, they're, they're party animals. One becomes a Christian. They start living their life for Christ. There, there's going to be a slowing of the moral decay within the family that there is going to be uh, kind of forced restraint on the other spouse. And we see in Peter that he instructs women in this situation to continue living for Christ, that, that, hopefully prayerfully over the course of your life, you have an impact for the gospel that the gospel has an impact in your unbelieving spouse lives. I think this deals with the, the influence that a Christian has within their environment. And I want to be careful on this point, especially in our day and age, we live in a, in a, under a government and authority that's over us. That is very different from basically any other, world system to this point we the people we have a right to vote we have a a a right to sort of set views and i totally believe in voting i totally believe that we should stand for things but i think that in our system there's a lot of confusion in christian circles where we want to start legislating morality And this isn't 
what Jesus is saying here. It's not about forcing morality or regulating or legislating morality. We shouldn't be surprised when the world sins, right? I mean, it shouldn't surprise us. We shouldn't treat those apart from Christ or hold them to any sort of expectation. But then the deal is, is that if you have a society of 100 people and 30 of them are followers of Christ, and those 30 people follow Christ's example and live according to kingdom principles, it's going to affect the society at, heart, at large just because. I love this reinforcement of Jesus following persecution. There's no command for the Christian to withdraw from their community, their environment, the place where they live and work. If anything, there's this pushing that it's a part of his plan that we continue as believers in Christ to, to be in these environments of non-believers. We're needed. Now back to this, what does he mean? If salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. I am no chemist, but in my quick Googling and my reading, Salt is probably one of the most stable sort of um, thingamajiggers that we have. <laughs> like salt doesn't necessarily become unsalty. But then again, we're thinking of salt according to our, our understanding. If you were to go to Israel and you'd see the Dead Sea, basically the Dead Sea around its edges going into the water, it's, it's like a hundred and however many blistering degrees, always. But it looks like there's ice. But what it is, is it's like the salted minerals sort of going into the water. And up the shoreline, as the water of the Dead Sea is evaporating, it's, it's leaving these composites. One of them is salt, and they would harvest their salt uh, through this area. And so you could get salt... That was good, but you could also harvest salt that was mixed in with other impurities that you couldn't remove. And if you had that bad salt, it was totally and completely worthless. It wasn't good for preserving meat. It wasn't good for uh, gardening uh, or any other element. You had to literally, the only place you could put it where it wouldn't do destruction, you could throw it onto the road where it would be trampled underfoot. I read somewhere that in their houses, they have the flat top house where like people would stay, like they would walk, have their like patio on top of the roof and they would use a bad salt to sort of fill in the cracks and use it so that again, it would be an element that the only thing it was really good for was being trampled upon. And so now when we look at this picture, what is the warning? You are the salt of the world. Then he says, but if, a salt, if, if salt becomes useless, it's totally useless. If it loses its flavor. In this whole picture, the Beatitudes, the salt, there's this distinction from the, the culture. That, that, that Christ doesn't, this is one of those, there's a tension that every Christian, churches, Christianity at large, the United States, how do we be salt and light in our community? Um, and I think that the tension that Jesus is describing is what he um, 
I think it's in John 17 where you see, you know, now it's become like a trendy little logo that somebody's making money off of the now bumper stickers. Not of this world. It comes from Jesus is saying. So it says not of this world. But the idea is that we're in the world, but not of the world. And so we're called to be in the world. We're not called to remove ourselves from the world, but we're not of this world. So as we're in the world, as we're in these relationships, as we're in our workplace, as we're at school, as we're with our friends, our neighbors, we are Christians in the midst of a, of a world that doesn't operate under kingdom principles. Yet we as followers of Christ operate under these kingdom principles or we should. Now it's easy that to lose the saltiness for it would be for us to, to compromise or to leave or to become like the world so that we're no longer distinct. Now, Dr. Lloyd, Dr. Lloyd Jones says this, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It is that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate her at first. And it's our distinction from the world that draws people to ask the sort of the, the questions. I think that sort of the moral decay, the thing that I've um, noticed in my Christian life, I don't think that at all in my life I've ever told somebody that their language offends me. Like I just, I, I've never been in an environment where there was like profanity or something. The, the only situation that I can think of is things sort of change when I became a parent. And so like if I'm at the zoo or I'm at the beach and I'm walking along with, you know, our little gaggle of kids and I hear somebody like dropping bad language behind me. Well, I don't get offended, but I do give the stink eye now. Like I'll kind of look, I'm like, dude, do you see kids? <laughs> like, Let's be a little respectful. But those are people I don't know. So, and they don't know I'm a Christian or they know that's just me being an upstanding citizen trying to like preserve, you know. But then when I was a SEAL and I became a Christian, my buddies that knew I became a Christian, they'd be swearing around me and I'd walk up and they're like, oh, sorry, I offended you. I'm like, I didn't say you offended me. I'm not like, I used all of those things. I'm just working on not saying that. I'm just, I'm doing my best not to, to use them. Still this day, I have... You know, I'm a pastor's nightmare. I have nightmares that I'll be preaching and all of a sudden it's just like vulgarity comes out of my mouth. It's horrifying. <laughs> so I'm like, you don't offend me. I'm like, I'm like, but my presence, because they knew that I follow Christ, suddenly God uses me to sort of, to put the brakes on immorality or what the to- topic is. When you show up and people are gossiping, do you add fuel to the fire of gossiping, talking poorly about people, talking about whatever? Or do when you show up, people say, oh, we probably shouldn't talk about this because they, uh, they don't find our humor the same. It's something I've been convicted over in my own life. But so in this, this picture of salt, the picture of salt is almost like you're not trying to be salt. You just are salt. You just, if you're walking with Christ, if the fruit of the spirit is manifesting itself in your life, this, this element of preservation, God's wrath, the delaying, if it's in your home with your marriage, uh, 
It's not anything we do. It's just kind of, it's a statement. But now we come to the light. And Jesus doesn't stop. He, he sort of puts a command on us as we deal with the light. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the, lamps, uh, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, you are the light of the world. Imagine that in a world without electricity. The last time we went to Mexico, um, the site where we built the house, if you, if you needed to use the bathroom, which I happened to do on the trip, um, this one house, it was like a, you had to go down the steps and then you had to like go into their house and then you had to kind of go through a couple hallways of this very like clay structure without windows. Windows are expensive. And as you navigated at the, at the end of the building... There was like one like electrical wire with a bulb hanging there that was the light. And every time I go to Mexico to do house building, I seem to come back with like a new appreciation of something. And coming to church the next day, being here, like we have a lot of light. Like I had said something about the light bulb, but then it was like three days later, Daniel Fredericks came to me. He's like, do you know how many light bulbs we have in the sanctuary? I'm like, I don't know a lot. He's like, we have 114 light bulbs. So he took the time to count. I don't know. He must have got here really early one day or I was really boring one Sunday. I don't. But he knew that there, there are 114 light bulbs in the sanctuary. And so I don't think we appreciate light like most of the world. A world where when it got dark, it got dark. Um a unique thing about light, light penetrates darkness. Um, I, I was raised, um, flashlights get me very weird feelings. Uh, let me explain. I'm not that really weird. Uh, but in my last vocation, we did a lot of work at night. Every now and again, you needed light to, to see like a map or to see something. Most of the times we would take a little flashlight we would paint the lens red, and then I would cover it with rigorous tape, which is like high-speed duct tape. And then I would poke a tiny, tiny little hole in the duct tape so just a little, like just enough red light would come out so that I could see what I was working on. The, the concept of having like a white light is unheard of. And if you were ever doing something and you had like a regular flashlight and you had an accidental discharge with your light, you were going to get camp. You were going to get beat up. Like it was bad. So now I hang out with cops and cops aren't as necessarily like, I'll be with the SWAT team and they'll be practicing and somebody will like bump their flashlight. It's like, you just hit your, like I'm the chaplain saying, like my instinct is like, you need to drop on down and do some push-ups, buddy. Like this is like, you just compromised light because everybody can see the light. He says, a city on a hill, you can't hide it. There's a hill. When you walk out of the church, if you look over here, there's a hill. There used to be an American flag on the top of the hill. I don't think the flag's there anymore. 
But if we sent one of our younger kids, if we all showed up at like midnight, sent one of the young kids to like go the 10 miles across there and said, I want you to, to light a cigarette lighter, we would see it if it was dark enough because the light would penetrate. And they understood the lamp. This is, this is a smaller scale. This came from Israel. This is like the, the, the trinket that you went. I don't even know where it came from, but it, it's like one of the places you get one of these. And this is a picture of the lamp. I imagine it's a little bit smaller. That You'd fill it with oil. You'd light the wick. And in the second illustration here where he says, no one lights a lamp and puts it in a basket. So imagine it's midnight. We're all here. The power goes out. We have no light anywhere. It's total darkness. I say, hey, guys, don't worry. I got my lamp from Israel. I'm going to put some oil in here. I'm going to light it up. And then I'm going to say, I got it covered, guys. I lit it. All right. We good? Would that do any good down there? It wouldn't. But what I would do is I'd probably run up and put it on top of that cross over there. And if the lamp is up high, it would provide enough light. I mean, probably not by our standards to read a book, but it would illuminate this room enough to where we wouldn't run into each other sort of thing. And Jesus is saying, you are the light of the, of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on a lampstand, it gives light to all who see the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. There's his command. Jesus tells his followers, you're all my candles. I've, I don't say lit you on fire. I've lit your wick so that you can shine to the world. I'm using you to be my ambassadors to demonstrate the gospel that the world would understand who I am so that they could have peace with God. We as followers of Christ, like I love this, blessed are all of these however many times that word could be translated happy. I love Charles Swindoll and he always cracks me up when he says Christians walk around like they've been baptized in lemon juice. Like we've received eternal life. We can be happy. We're joyful. Our, uh, this world is not where we find our satisfaction. It reminds me of the, the Newsboy song. I said it was an old song last service and somebody came up to me and said, Sonny, the 90s are not old. <laughs> That song's a new song, and it's a good song. When the news voice has the song, shine. I love the word. They make me smile. Shine, make them wonder what you've got. Make them wish that they were not on the outside looking bored. Like their song is kind of like, as the Christians live in their life, and before I was a Christian, I used to say, I don't want to be a Christian because I like having fun. And man, I tell you, being a Christian, I've never had so much fun in my life. And I don't wake up with receipts in my pocket anymore wondering, where, what, what did I do last night? That is not fun. <laughs> the people who laugh know exactly what I'm talking about. So I'm like, <laughs> shame on you. Hopefully it was old. You know, Just kidding. That's me. Uh, shine. Let them shine before all men. Let them see good works. Let them glorify the Lord. Jesus wants us to walk with him. He wants us to be salt, that we are distinct from our, uh, our culture. And if you live your life distinct, the world around you will notice. You might face persecution, but you also might pique interest. Peter tells us that we are to be ready in season and out. The idea that, that as we follow Christ, it's inevitable. Somebody say, what's the deal with you? 
So as I've been thinking about this, this is terribly convicting. I am, uh, I am not, I am the farthest thing from an evangelist. That is not my gifting. It doesn't mean that I'm exempt from it. We all are called to share Christ. But as I look at this, our inclination as Christians is to withdraw. I don't, I don't have the study before me. I don't even know who did the study, but I saw a study once. That's good enough for Wikipedia. That it said that like the timeline from a time a person becomes a Christian, I think it's five years before they basically, they virtually have no friends or relationships outside of Christianity. It was totally true in my life. Like I became a Christian and I was so like worried about falling and stumbling that I had to totally like immerse myself in Christianity to get strong, to grow, to be discipled, to be nurtured. But then I reached this point where it was like, God's like, you have to like be kicked out of the nest. As a pastor, I find it super easy to be, um, to find myself in a bubble. And I think what the Lord wants us and something for us, you know, is Bible beef jerky, something for us to ponder, to chew on, to consider is are you intentionally nurturing and developing meaningful relationships with those who don't know Christ? Like a lot of why I do law enforcement chaplaincy is because it's good for me to be out. And I can tell you when I'm around cops, they don't act like Christians. They're not like that. I don't even think a lot of them even have a clue what a chaplain is. But it's good. And I'm working on developing relationships. I have neighbors that don't know Christ that I am intentional about trying to develop relationship, meaningful relationships. Not for the sake so that I'm not manipulating the relationships so that I can then evangelize them Although my heart is that they would come to know Christ and an opportunity would present itself that I and how God has wired me that I would be able to share the gospel. But, but when I talk about intentionally nurturing and developing meaningful relationships, it's that your relationships with those around you in your workplace, your school, your neighbors, wherever you are, that you would genuinely love them, that you would genuinely care about them. That your motivation for sharing Christ, being a light to them, is because you're profoundly burdened for them. And I share, I'm a horrible evangelist. There are some people like Debbie's total evangelist. Like I see her. We got to, so, so when we went to Israel, I got our tour guide. I can't even remember his name. Yeah. See, they're still praying for him. <laughs> they go there. He's not a believer. He does tours all the time. He's heard the gospel. So I'm just kind of like, there's no, like in my mind, I'm like, there's not even a problem trying to like witness him. Debbie's the first time. She's like, we are going to pray for him and we are going to lead him to Christ. And that's like, you go girl. Like that's like, like there are some people, Andrea Giorgi, the missionary we support in Italy. He is like just Mr. Evangel. Like he uses his hands and his, but for the rest of us, like me, we need to be intentional. We need to step out of our uncomfort zone. We have a great opportunity in a few weeks, however many, it's April, like the first weekend of April, Easter's coming. Easter is like this softball. 
most people if that don't go to church or not church going, Easter is one of those holidays where if you were to invite them to church, the likelihood of them saying yes and coming to church is very likely. When I moved to Valley Center to come restart this church, I knew that one of the things would be like evangelism. I'm like, well, I, like, that's not my gifting. I don't know how I'm going to do it. And I said, well, when I moved to Valley Center, you know, eight years ago, I'm like, what I'm going to do is I'll just go to the town and I'll just go to Starbucks and I'll hang out in Starbucks until like I just start meeting people drinking coffee. So for the last eight years, I've been trying to find the Starbucks in town. <laughs> like there's no Starbucks. There is, there just isn't Starbucks here. Maybe someday. The one in Rincon's too far away. And then we start going to the casino thing, which I have a whole bunch of other issues there. Like, I don't know. I'm, I don't know if I'm strong enough just yet. But for us as a church to reach our community, Valley Center is a different world. Like, it, it really is a different community. And if we as a church want to reach our community, it's not about having big events and stuff. What, what it requires is each one of us. Like the way this church is going to reach our community for Christ is you. If you're in this room and this is your church and you are a follower of Christ, the way we reach our community is through you. Your network of friends. Alberto's an evangelist. You'll see him on the corner to the guys, the migrant workers. It brings tears to my eyes. I'll drive by and he's there with his cup of coffee, his cane, his like insulin or whatever for his infection stuff for his foot. Like, and he's still there. Love it on those guys. So who are the people in your neighborhood? Who are the people in your community clubs? Who, If we're going to reach our community here in Valley Center, it requires each of us in our own little spheres of influence being salt and light. I'm excited about, we, we have a little, Ben and I came up with a little idea. Um, I think it was my idea. I'm going to run with it. I'm taking credit. He... <laughs> so for like the last six years, what we do is like our heart for like kind of getting involved in our community as a church is we do Western days. We, John Johnston has his big old deuce and a half. We load up that thing. We go down the parade route. You got to get there at a horrible hour. It's like, you got to get there at seven and the thing doesn't start till 10. And every year for like the last six years, I show up at seven. I'm kind of cold. I'm like, oh man, it was so early. I forgot to bring some coffee. I really should have brought coffee. I wish there was coffee. <laughs> Is there coffee anywhere? Well, like three miles down the road, there's some pancake stuff. That there's probably coffee. And it's like, I'm not walking three miles down the road to get like, well. And so last year, we're like, this year, we as a church are going to provide coffee at the parade staging route because coffee is important, like as a way to love them. So Ben's already worked it out that we have deep, that we have approval. And maybe it's my desire for coffee. Maybe this is a way that I'm going to get coffee. The thing I, but I don't think I'm alone. I certainly can't be alone that I'm the only one that wants coffee on that cold morning. And it's a way that we can tangibly love on our community and be salt and light. And so in closing, when we, when we went through Ephesians, I... Um, there's a verse that, that stood out to me. Uh, Ephesians 5.8 says, You were formerly darkness. And 
I had read Ephesians so many times and it wasn't until I, I taught through it that I realized that it doesn't say you formerly were in darkness, that it says you formerly were darkness. I'm like, that is terribly offensive. But before Christ, I was darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And so when I come to this passage about you are salt of the earth and you are light of the world, the the biggest question, the question of the day is, have you trusted in Christ for salvation? If you haven't trusted in him, believed in him, then you're darkness. And the Bible tells a very dreary story on that side that your sin is vile. But the good news is that Christ loves us so much that he came to give his life for us. Christianity isn't a religion where you have to do a bunch of stuff. Christianity is a religion that says you're poor in spirit, you're hopeless, you bring nothing to the table, there is nothing at all you can do, but the good news is you have a God that did it all for you. And you respond by belief. And for those of us in this room who have trusted in Christ as Savior, we're told that we are salt and light. And we are salt and light for a purpose. Second Corinthians chapter 5, the last half of it, verses 16 through 21 the word reconciliation is used a bunch of times. And in there, we as Christians are told that our purpose for existence, our ministry, is that of reconciliation. Our, 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 our ministry is not picketing, boycotting, complaining about sin. Our, our ministry is that Christ died for this sinful world and he wants us to see them through his eyes The passage builds where Paul says that God is making an appeal through their lives. The believers' lives is is he is using us as an appeal to the world that they might come to Christ and receive him as Savior. And that's our ministry. So, Father, we do thank you, Lord, that you are a loving, gracious God. We thank you, Father that it's the inside that you care about. We thank you, Lord, that in our sinfulness, in our inability, in our unrighteousness, in our complete and total helpless state, you made a way that we could be saved, that we could have peace with you. We thank you that our relationship with you is based upon what you've done, not upon our works, for we could never, ever, ever come up with enough enough righteousness, Lord, that we would be at peace with you. We thank you that it's by grace alone that we're saved through faith. Father, for those of us in this room who are still wrestling or uncertain about where they stand with you, I pray, Father, that you would help them, that you would guide them, that you would fill in whatever blanks, Lord, that you would help them to come to a place where they have assurance about their relationship with you in Christ. Father, for those of us who are saved, who we've responded to the gospel, but we are burdened by by the feeling that um, we need to maintain works in order to please you, that 
our relationship with you is that, that you're this God who is sort of weighing out our good and bad and ready just to, um, to throw the hammer at us to break us down. I pray that you would help us to fully understand grace, that we would live grace, that we would walk in grace, that we would be graceful people. Father, I pray that our desire for good works would be fruit of the work that you've done in our lives, that it would be out of love and gratitude and thankfulness and joy for this right relationship that we have with you through Christ. Father, we pray for our community. Father, I pray that you would burden our hearts for our neighbors, for those in our community, for the businesses, for our family members. Lord, I pray that you would give us just a deep burden for the lostness around us. Father, we say we're here. We're ready to be used by you. Give us the words. Help us to love as you loved. We are thankful, Lord, um, for this relationship we have in you. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.